Praise God. Thank you for the mighty man of God that he is. I pray to bless him abundantly now. I pray that he would stand here in your sonship and the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, we open up our hearts to hear from you afresh. We want to be challenged and changed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Tash is great, isn't she? <clears throat> Tash can do the half hour and 20 minutes. <clears throat> she can run through the stuff. It's great. Brilliant. Good. Um, really excited this morning to be with you and to be speaking on our series in Cultivate. It's coming relatively close to an end, just another two Sundays. And um, so we've really enjoyed this, really enjoyed sharing on it, and really enjoyed what the Lord is saying. Um, I, uh, yeah, okay. Let's pray. Let's pray and ask the Lord just to bless His Word. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the power and the truth and the depth of it. We thank You that You speak to us every time we open His pages if we take time to listen. So we say, speak, Lord, your sons and your daughters are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take this little verse here and talk to you about an aspect of it um, this morning. All right, others like seed sown in good soil, hear the word, accept it, produce a crop, some 30, some 60, and some 100 times what was sown. I don't know if you remember when I spoke about this a way back at the very start, I said that the, um, the, the seed that fell along the path and the seed that fell amongst the stones and the seed that fell in the thorny bushes were all pretty normal things that would happen. This one is pretty abnormal. This was supernatural supply to have a, a 30, 60, and a hundredfold return of seed was unheard of. And so this was one of those standout moments as Jesus told this story that had been going along with him okay to this point. At this point, they would have gone, that could never happen. That just couldn't happen. It's not possible. It's not humanly possible. But it, it did happen. And I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about how it happened. On the opening Sunday when Pentecost arrived, that opening day when Pentecost arrived on planet Earth, the church grew by 3,000 people in a matter of hours. That's supernatural, all right? They got saved and they got baptized. Um, at their second public gathering, over 5,000 people were added to that number. As a matter of fact, theologians and historians tell us that six months after Pentecost, there were in around 100,000 new believers in six months. It's pretty incredible. The church was growing. Um, and here's the thing. Here's the reality. Every single one of us in this room can trace our faith back to that moment when a handful of Christians gathered in an upper room. Every single one of us. Pretty cool, isn't it? Now, so I want to take that little phrase, um, um, the producing a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. And I want to talk to you this morning about the fruit of sending. There's something about sending. Um, um, the Bible tells us it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to send than get. 
And so there's something very powerful about that. And um, Rick, over the last couple of weeks, did a very powerful job talking to us about what's going on in our land. And um, we look at our little um, idea, that arrow, that the, the red line at the top is just the south shores of Loch Ness. It's a little place called Craig of, uh, Craig Evan, or if you're posh, you can call it Craig Avon. But it's Craig Evan, all right? It's like Dunez Batik, his duns. All right, okay, so, um, and here we are at the south shores of Loch Nain, what God has been doing with here after now 27 years here in Lurgan, and um, starting in the home in Warringstown, and then five years ago going to Portadown, we think of the Cara guys, six, seven years ago, Shalom down in North Lurgan, Ian and Jennifer in Warringstown opening their home, Willie and Farah with a heart and a passion for Mournview, we have David and Cheryl who have a, a heart and a passion. Rick spoke to us last week about this, who have a heart and a passion for the South, especially the West Coast, and feeling the draw of that becoming even more eminent as the days unfold. We've got Tabar and Nua, which are influencing the nation, um, mostly in the North at the moment, but with um, windows of development down in the south, which is really powerful. And one of our dreams in Tabar, um, which is um, the, our church planting network that was born out of the house here, um, one of the dreams is to have a resource center in the south. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a resource center that would resource and plant new churches in the south of Ireland? And here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's what you've got to know. When it comes to the fruit of of produce when it comes to something producing out of what God is doing, he ordained the church. We are the church. We are the church. Everywhere people gather today, um, it's not a building, it's not a club, it's not a committee, it's not a denomination, it's a body. We are the body of Christ, and um, Jesus is the head of that body, and we will we will, if, if we stay connected to the head and if we stay aligned with what God is doing on planet earth, we will produce some 30, some 60, and even a hundredfold um, of the seed that's been planted. That's pretty cool. Uh, I want to take a couple of passages out of Acts, and I want to talk to you about the growth of this thing called the church. I'm going to talk about the church today because we are the church, all right? And I think it's God's plan A. There's no doubt about that. It's God's plan A. He doesn't have a plan B. The church is what God will use to see this fulfilled. Now, Acts 11, in Acts 11, we have the story of the church of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's church was a, uh, uh, the first church um, after Pentecost. And it says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. Stephen was slaughtered in Acts chapter 7, um, and then uh, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent, see that word? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. They sent somebody of high influence and high esteem 
to see what was going on in Antioch. When it goes um, a couple of verses on down in verses 25 and 26, Barnabas then realizes, I know the man for the job. He realizes that Paul has been out of the picture, but he knows this man, and he's been out of the picture for quite a number of years. And Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, knowing that his mission was to the Gentiles. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The reason they were called Christians was a slang term. They were making fun of them. It was supposed to be a fun thing. They called them little Christs or Christ ones or who do you think you are? That was basically what they were doing, but the term stuck. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, with that name, Christians, little Christ or Christ ones or Christ-like, all right? It's kind of interesting because if you've ever studied the book of Acts, when you get to the end of the book of the Acts, it's a bit of an anticlimax, really, because you feel there's something missing. You feel, uh, oh, and now what? It's like, what's going to happen now? Well, it's meant to be like that because the mission goes on. It didn't stop at the end of Acts. This is why I'm talking about this this morning, because we are the continuation of that. The mission continued, and of course, that's the reason. Now, when you turn to Acts 13, the first three verses, it talks about this church at Antioch. There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Niger, Lucas of Cyrene, Manon, who had been brought up with Herod, um, the, the, the tetrarch, and then Saul, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they had placed their hands on them, see the little term again, and sent them off. There's something about sending. The fruit of this labor, the fruit of this seed that is sown, the good soil starts to produce something that you can't contain. It starts to produce something that you can't house in four walls. It starts to uh, produce something in your life that you can't contain inside you. It has, to, it has to expand. It has to grow. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is how do we go from that Acts 11 church, because the church of Jerusalem was a big, comfortable seating church. But then something happened, and then um, when we go to Acts 13, we read about the church in Antioch. So it went from seeding to sending. It went from being a good seeding church to being a good sending church. And you say, well, Phil, what, 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 how, how did that happen? Well, I haven't time to expound it this morning, but when you go home, read the chapter in between, the one that's missing there, chapter 12. And you'll find two things happened in chapter 12. You'll find that James, or if you've been watching The Chosen, Big James, um, James, the son of uh, James and John, the two brothers. James got his head chopped off. He was slain by the sword, right? And then, secondly, when Herod saw that everybody thought this was a great idea, he proceeded to do the same to Peter. But Peter had a miraculous escape. An angel came and miraculously opened the doors of the prison and. And Peter literally walked out past all of these guards who were supernaturally put to sleep. The gates opened, took him out into the city. city. The angel took him down the street a little bit and then disappeared. So Peter thought, I'll go to the house of John Mark because John Mark's mom's a good lady and he knew that they were praying for him. So he goes to the house of John Mark and he knocks the door and the servant girl is called Rhonda. 
And she comes to the door and she says, who's there? And he says, it's Peter. And she ran back into the room. She didn't believe him. She ran back into the room. Now, they're praying for Peter's release. But when it came, she didn't believe it. And she ran in and said, somebody's at the door and they're pretending to be Peter. But of course, it was Peter. And the two things that produced growth in the church were miracles and suffering. Those are the two things. Miracles and suffering. And somehow in Christendom today, we don't like to talk too much about other. And they're the two things that scattered the church. They're the two things that met, took the church from a, a great seeding church to a great sending church. Miracles and suffering. And I say any church that's worth its salt needs to have a strong theology of suffering and a strong theology of healing. That's really important. Because we live in a now and not yet. We live in a kingdom that is um, where the now breaks in. And we see moments where something happens really profound. And we see the power of God at work. And we say, praise God, that's amazing. And then many of you, as you read Julie's poem today, as Tash recited the poem, had a little tear run down your cheek because you'll visit a grave today and put flowers in a grave. And um, so suffering... And miracles are what grows the church, all right? Now, I've told you this story a couple of times before, but any good story bears repeat, so please bear with me if you've heard it before. Um, I, I, I grew up, my dad was a um, quarry business. Made, uh, my brother, Kenny, and I, who we made concrete blocks um, for the building industry. It was heavy, hard work at the time, and and um, we, uh, I operated a machine called a Finley 44, and it made blocks, and it made them on their end 44 in a pile. And then when these blocks hardened, you had to stack them, and you stacked them um, in piles maybe 12 and 13 high. And I, me and my brother Kenny designed this grab that could do three times. Instead of just doing them one at a time, we would do them. So we would lift one, set it on top of another one, lift those two, and set them on top of a third one. So you'd, instead of doing 44 at a time, you'd be doing 132. I know it means nothing to you, but bear with me for the sake of the story. And so we, did, we, we went to the engineer and said, we think this would work. The engineer said, never work. You never get a forklift to lift it. We said, look, you, you, you make it, we'll get a forklift to lift it. And they made, they designed this, this, this block grab. They still use it to this day. We should have patented it. We really should. But it was all metal and hydraulic hoses and hydraulic rams. And it sort of, it lifted and squeezed and stacked and done all of this kind of stuff. Um, great. And I remember the day I came home. I remember the day I went to lift it in uh, my brother Alan's Mazda pickup van. And I came home, we fixed it to the forklift, and it worked. And I was, I was about 17 years of age, and me and Kenny was 19, and we had designed this, and we were really proud. This was our invention. We had designed this. This was our invention. It was ours, and we were really pleased. On the 2nd of September, 1979, um, uh, my wife Jill went into labor with our firstborn, Lisa. And it was Sunday morning, the early hours of Sunday morning, so we belted over to Craig Evan Hospital, and in she went, and um, it went on all day. You know what happens, girls, you know it well. And um, it went on all day, and uh, us poor men, we had to wait and wait and wait. And, uh, um, and, and uh, uh, eventually, ten past five on Sunday night, my firstborn daughter was born. I... I 
was forced by Mr. Wallace to cut her umbilical cord, which I ended up doing for all of my five kids. My dad was totally disgusted. Um, men didn't go in to into the, their wife having a baby back then, but it was, it was just beginning, and it was beautiful. And um, when Lisa was born, when we cut the umbilical cord, her lungs filled, and she let a scream out of her, and she started to punch the air. And um, she's been doing it for the last 43 years. Um, and um, it, uh, all of a sudden, I forgot about the invention. I forgot all about that silly old lump of steel and hydraulic hoses and all of that, that thing that I was so proud of. Something absolutely beautiful and much more precious totally surpassed it. Because this wasn't an invention, you see. This was my creation. This was part of me. This was our creation. And, um, and my question to you as I talk about the church around the country today, I ask people this question. Do you think the church is an invention or do you think the church is a creation? Because the answer to that will, will firm in your mind what you really think the church is and what you think it should do. Is it an invention? Is it just something that man made up? Is it just an idea that we created through all our, our smartness and all of that? Or is it something that was created back in the courtrooms of heaven and the splendor of heaven? And so, this is what I want to talk to you about because the fact that Jesus, when he was on planet earth, made a statement like this is very powerful. He said, I will build my church. I want you to remember this little verse. It's a very powerful verse, Matthew 16, 18. And I'm going to talk to you a few things about it. But I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All right? The church is not a building, a club, a program, or a committee. I've said it's not man-made. It's not built in man's terms. It's not a particular style, denomination, or style of worship. Here's the big idea. The big idea is the church is the sovereign will of God, it is the purpose of God, and it is the central fact of His will. It is His creation. It's not our invention. It is His creation. Actually, he, the psalmist goes as far to say that unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. If the Lord doesn't do it, it's a stupid idea. All right? And, and I've put some verses down there to show you that God is, we, we tend to think that God just created the world and then He quit. God is always building. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, he's creating. Genesis 12, he's creating a nation. In, in 1 Peter 2, he's building a church, living stones, not blocks, by the way. Not all the same shape and size. Stones, all different shapes and sizes. You look at the person beside you and say, you're, no, no, don't do that. Um, you're a different shape than me. That's probably not the right thing to say. But you know what I mean? It's, we're, we're all different. And then in John 14, he's gone to prepare a place. He's building many mansions. God is a builder. As a matter of fact, when he went to send his son Jesus to earth, he put him into the home of a builder. It's most likely that um, Joseph was not just a carpenter. Historians will tell you he probably was a handyman. He probably was the guy you would get to put your extension on, the guy that could do a little bit of plumbing and a little, I'm going to say a little bit of electrical, but I'm sure none of that existed back then. He could do everything he could put. He was a handyman. And Jesus grew up in the home of a builder, all right? And, and when he makes this inaugural statement about the central fact of his will, he, he makes 
Some things really, really clear. This is what I want to say. Because Jesus builds prophetically. When he's building the church, he builds it prophetically. He says, I will. It's a declaration of what will be. Even though there was nothing to show for it, while it's not visible, there was nothing really significant, um, it will become something great. He's looking at it through a prophetic lens, and the Greek word means to build a house. When he says, I will build, I will build a house. And we know if you've ever built a house that you wanted to see you want to see progress been made because living things grow. Lives must change, disciples must be made, the kingdom must advance must advance. And Jesus promised that this thing called the church would be invasive. It would be systematic and systemic. It would be always growing. It would be always advancing. We say sometimes for a movement to be a movement, it has to keep moving because if it stops moving, it becomes a monument. All right? So it needs to keep moving. Not only does he build prophetically, he builds purposefully I will is a statement of purpose. I will do this. Well, there's a lot of things that Jesus could do while he was here on planet Earth. He announces that he will do this one thing. He says, I will build my church. I love what Criswell says about this. He says, God's main intention in human history is to reunite himself with a world that is estranged by sin. All that he is doing in space and time is an effort to further that desire. He builds... Um, prophetically. He builds um, purposefully, and he builds personally. I love this. He's my church. I will build my church. It's his church. It's not our invention. It's his creation. I will build my church. He's put on ownership and value. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Ephesians tells us that the church was so important to him. He said, he, he, he referred to husbands, Paul, when he's writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Ephesians 5, 25, much like a marriage relationship, the term bride of Christ is meant to help us understand Christ's love for his church in the same way a husband and wife would describe their love for each other during the marriage ceremony. Paul sums that up in a very powerful way, because true love always sacrifices something. There's a little verse in Psalm 66, uh, or 68, verse 6, 68, that God places the lonely in families. I love that. He sets the prisoners free, and he gives them joy. 1 Corinthians 12, many, our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it to be. God desires us to be in godly relationships. Rick has been reminding of this, that our relationships are really important um, because he puts us in a family, and a person's identity arises from their relationships. We know that. He builds prophetically. He builds purposefully. He builds personally. I love this. He builds passionately. If you want passion. He says, the gates of hell won't prevail against this. Hell will not stop this. No demonic force will stop this. And the reality that there are two opposing kingdoms around us all the time, we've discovered that as we've studied the seed in the ground, of, as we've studied the different types of soils. Prior to salvation, you're an enemy of God. 
Uh, uh, Colossians 1, I love the book of Colossians, and Colossians 1.21 says this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your thoughts and your actions. But when you surrender to Christ, you transfer from that kingdom into another kingdom. You go on and on down a few verses in uh, or, or back a few verses, sorry, in Colossians 1 to 13 and 14, he says he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. I love this terminology. He's rescued you from the kingdom of darkness. He's plucked you out of the, the clutches of hell, and he has transferred you into the kingdom of his dear son. Oh, man. I, sorry to go against anybody with a saved and lost theology, but when you read verses like that, I'm not dead sure where you get it from. Transfer. He rescues, not to put you back into it, he rescues out of the kingdom of darkness, and he transfers you into the kingdom of his dear son. That's pretty beautiful, isn't it? Purchase our freedom, forgives our sins, and now you're on the opposing side of the enemy, and, um, and sometimes whenever you do that, the enemy can get a lot more hostile. And it reminds us two things. It reminds us, number one, the certainty of conflict there's going to be conflict. Wherever the church is alive and growing, hell is opposing it. You can rest assured that. And so we need to stand fast and resist the work of the enemy, all right? The Bible doesn't say ignore the devil and he'll flee from you. It says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And there's a little flip side to that coin because it says submit yourself unto God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We forget that first little statement. And not only does it show us the certainty of conflict, it reminds us of the promise of victory. The church need to recognize that Christ defeated the devil at the cross. He was defeated. He is in borrowed time, all right? C.S. Lewis, I love this in his um, analogy of Christianity. This is what he says. He says, ever since C.S. Lewis's stuff, I read sometimes and I think I wish I had said that, but this is one of those statements. Ever since Christ's ascension, his church army is engaged in a mopping up operation. The church militant, as long as she is the church obedient, will be the church triumphant as well. We're just mopping up. We're just mopping up the mess. Jesus is coming back. One of these days, pretty soon, sooner than maybe some of us think, Jesus is building his church and he's doing so strategically. And he launched this phase of it 2,000 years ago with about 120 people gathered at an upper room in Jerusalem. He told them to wait there till the Holy Spirit would arrive. Holy Spirit was poured out and, 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 and the church began to grow. The seed began to sprout. It started to go 30 and 60 and a hundredfold, and it started to spread across the world. How did they do it? Well, if you were to read, there's a little verse in Acts 2, 42, and this is what it says, and I love this little verse. It says, they devoted themselves. My question to you today is, what are you devoted to this morning? What is it you could say you're totally, absolutely devoted to? These people devoted themselves to some things. They, they loved God passionately. They devoted themselves. Um, they, were, they were passionate and an obvious dedication to the work of becoming that building, um, the church that, that Jesus had in mind. They not only loved God passionately, but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
They, put, they devoted themselves to the Word of God. It was the central thing to their gatherings. They would study it. They would meditate on it. They would interact around the Scriptures. They would teach from it in their home groups. They would gather around it on Lord's Day. They honored the Scriptures. They lived spirit-filled lives. All of them devoted themselves to, to, to signs and wonders, worshiping God together and praising God because the church was birthed in and by a miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit had become a consistent part of their lives. They thought if we needed this to birth us, then we, needed, we need this to grow us. And it just became the obvious thing. He showed up in their prayer meetings. They, Acts 4, read it, the last verse, the place they met began to shake. The very foundations of the prayer meeting began to shake. He turned up in their worship, in their ministry to the needs. They connected with purpose. They, they, all the believers met together in one place. They shared everything they had. This is pretty cool. The growing church became a community. This is why it started to go 30, 60, 100 fold. They integrated each other's lives with a sense of purpose. They were part of something larger than themselves. It's called the church. It's a beautiful thing. It's a creation it's not an invention. And they began to grow as disciples. All of them devoted themselves to this dis, dis, disciple learning. Those who made this growing community of, of Christ followers allowed their lives to be shaped by the power of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the apostles. And as a result of that, they began to reach people everywhere. Because you're the church. This isn't just a Sunday's not just a church. You're the church. And so tomorrow morning, we're sending you all out into your workplaces, into your schools, into your university to be the hands and the, and, and, the, and the Word of God. The Word of God out of your mouth is as powerful as it is out of His mouth. Always remember that. And so there's something. This church began to grow. Lives began to change. The community began to expand. And you cannot miss that this central point of the church that Jesus had in mind was growth. The church needed to be on mission to reach the hurting, the lost, and those who don't know Christ. And so to do that, they began to just build and plant churches strategically everywhere. They just began, well, there's a need there. Let's go there. Well, there's a need there. Let's go there. Well, there's a need there. Let's send some people there. This is what they've done. I, I, I say sometimes that the, the church that Jesus had in mind, I think, gathers together here on Sunday, but also after today, it dissembles and it, it leaks out into the cracks and crevices of society to change a hurting world. That's how the church should work. And over the coming months and years, persecution began to scatter the disciples and the gospel began to cover the whole world. And wherever the gospel would be preached, um, people would just turn up and get saved. And this is what God had told them. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Be my witnesses telling people about me. Where? Everywhere. Everywhere. Here at home in Jerusalem, then out on the outskirts of Jerusalem in Judea, and then even down the road in Samaria, and then right to the very uttermost parts of the world. And we are simply an extension of this first church, this creation of God. And over six decades now, of some kind of particular church history tells me that the gospel still works and lives get changed. And from 120 people in an upstairs room somewhere in Jerusalem to over 2 billion people today on planet Earth, the church is growing and it's something powerful. And I ask you this, would it be growing as fast if somebody hadn't have provided that little upper room? 
mightn't just be growing as fast if someone hadn't done that. And so while you might be struggling um, to find the right answer to my question, it sometimes you struggle to know whether the church is truly uh, a structure or it's about people, a creation or an invention. We wonder sometimes if it's personal or professional. The question, maybe are we a number or are we a name? And while at times people get it wrong and even at times people are wounded, Jesus is building his church and we are the church. And I say sometimes church can be a bit like Noah's Ark. It can get a bit smelly inside, but it's a whole lot better than what's going on outside. That's for sure. And so Paul, one of the early builders of the church and leaders of the church, wrote to a particular church in Rome, and he sent this here. And don't be freaking out at this slide because I'm not going to read it. I just wanted to put, that's, that's Romans 16 all in one slide. But I wanted to highlight 28 names. So when Paul finishes the book of Romans, he, he takes time to give you 28 mostly unnamed individuals who were part of the Roman congregation. Like some of them try to, well, we know Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila, but what about Amplitius and Stachus and Apellus and Urbanus? Couldn't be John and Joe, sure couldn't. And then I love this little line. He says, greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own and also his dear mother, who's been a mother to me also. Wow. And when I read that chapter, here's, here's the cool thing. Don't worry, we're landing it now. Here's the cool thing about that chapter. God knows your name. God knows your name. So many individuals and shouted from the rooftops that every person matters. We are the church and you are important. You are important. Not the people who stand at the front. You are important. You are going out as a witness tomorrow. And Jesus cho chose his 12 disciples. I'm telling you this, there's not one of them really would impress you an awful lot. Many of them were uneducated workmen. Several were rough fishermen who just spent their time out in the open water catching fish. One was a tax collector. Everybody hated tax collectors, not high and mighty people of this world that impress God. Instead, Jesus is impressed with people who are active members of the church who have honored him by giving their lives and have joined with the billions throughout um, time who have lived to build the church. And here's the deal. Your part is essential. If we are going to see 30, 60, and 100 fold. Your part is essential. If you read through Romans 16, when you go home, you'll find Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives for me. Mary worked very hard for you. Tryphena and Tryposa, those women work hard in the Lord. Persis worked very, another woman, just saying, um, worked very hard in the Lord. On and on we could go. Apelles tested and approved in Christ, suffered for his faith. These workers were the nuts and bolts. They were the the, the, the rewriters of the stories, and God honored them by telling us their names. Pretty cool. And so we are the church, and if we're going to see the church grow, you are the church. Why? Because you're the body of Christ. And um, if you're going to be the church, you need to figure out the answer to that question I asked at the start. Is it an invention? Or is it a creation? Because if it's a creation, then it's God's house, not our house. It's God's. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell 
will not prevail against it. I don't know how they get these facts and figures. I was saying to Rick and Tash at the start, according to the Pulitzer Center, they reckon at this moment in time, 35,000 people a day are born again. 35,000 people a day at this moment in time are being born again. We are in the fastest growing movement in the world. Has been for 2,000 years. Nothing has surpassed it. And I don't believe anything ever will. All of the other things that grow, nothing is moving like the kingdom of God. I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. We're going to pray. Let's just bow our heads. Some of our guys are up around the front and we're going to finish now, but I'd love, we're trying to offer just prayer ministry. And if you feel just at this moment in time of your life that you've maybe slipped into the little invention mode that you've just thought, oh, it's just, a, you know, come because it's the thing to do. And it's just like a, the, you've just thought of the church as a structure or an organization or even a denomination. And, and this morning, maybe God send you, hey, this is something you could give your life for. This is something that you could give the rest of your life to. Because I tell you something, <laughs> there is nothing, there is nothing to outclass it. And there's nothing to beat it. And we would love to pray for you. So God, I just pray right now for every head bowed. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in the room this morning and they've never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would step into that moment to become part of the greatest movement that has ever taken place in the history of time. Lord, that they would step out of the kingdom of darkness and be transferred this morning, plucked, rescued, plucked out of a kingdom of darkness and rescued and translated and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. That's our desire this morning. So God, would you come? Would you seal your word? Would you seal it by your power? And would you bless it to us in Jesus' name? Amen.